I'll read it to you, and you'll think, well, why should anyone be disappointed in a selection of this kind? And that question will lead into what's on my heart to share. Because by every reckoning, this is perfectly legitimate, biblical, sound exposition, and it, uh, what he's commending would bless many. And yet, because of the whatever I am or where I am, it jars me. It's, and I'll try to explain why it is I'm in conflict with an otherwise ostensibly sound piece of spiritual counsel. And it's called Staying Alert on the 20th of June. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who during his ministry here on earth used many graphic images in his parables, for example, understands better than anyone how physical things can be used to increase spiritual awareness and understanding. I confess that for many years I've used some of the practice practices people have developed to help them remember how close God is to them as nothing more than crutches needed only by those who would not give priority to daily Bible reading and prayer. So these daily readings on in this section for the months of May and June are on knowing the presence of God or finding the presence of God and every day he's giving another tip on how to come into this reality. So he's been commending daily Bible reading and prayer. As I've talked with devout Christians about their spiritual lives, however, I've had to change my mind about this, for I've seen how in addition to regular Bible reading and prayer, the establishing of a single daily habit has made their relationship with God even more meaningful. Now he's going to describe this habit that he's encountered. We think now about another practice used by some in order to remind themselves of God's continuing presence in their lives. Right away, if you're tuned in in a certain way, your hackles will begin to rise when he uses language like reminding themselves of God's continuing presence, as if it's a function of man. And if you do this or do that, you can become more aware of God's presence by reminding yourself. And yet counsel like this will bless untold millions, and they will bless you. So, let me read on. Being alert and watching for anything interesting or unusual that happens during the day and immediately bringing God into it. One woman I know who does this explains, quote, Whenever something unusual or unexpected happens in my day, such as bumping into a friend I haven't seen for years or receiving a surprise phone call or a gift, I immediately relate the happening to God and say, Lord, how lovely of you to arrange my day in this way. I have done this so often that now, that's the woman's statement that he says, I have done this myself so often now, it has become a fixed habit, one that immediately focuses my mind on his all-pervading presence. So, what's the new thing that he's sharing? Whatever happens, of a novel kind especially, some, some unexpected a visit, a call, a gift, use it to say, Lord, thank you for bringing this into my day. And as you exercise this kind of guide, guideline, you're brought into the remembrance of the presence of God. Is that okay with you? 
Can you say amen? Would this, be, would this be valid counsel? It will bless many, but it doesn't bless me. And in fact, I think I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to cancel my subscription because this man is writing and speaking from a certain place that chafes me. And that place is this. It's the sense that there are two entities, man and God. And uh, they are relatively independent of each other. And man can, by exercise of his own will and by devices and practices, bring himself into a consciousness of this other who is God. And you say, well, what's wrong with that thought? Well, at a certain stage of spiritual growth, nothing is wrong. Maybe that's okay for the young in the Lord, but I think it falls short of God's intention. Because what he's after is not independent entities who exercise certain practices and formulas in order to invoke God's presence, but what he's after is an intimacy and a union where there are not two separate entities, but only one. Christ in us, the hope of glory, the union with the Lord, where you don't have to rev yourself up or practice something or exercise a certain formula to remind yourself of a presence. That presence is in you and with you at all times and constantly because he abides. So it's a remarkable uh, a spiritual jarring when you pit this Englishman against this Englishman. They're both English, but there's a world of difference between them. If you go on in this, in this man's direction, and he's a darling man, and this, these booklets go out around the world to millions of readers, uh, I think that it would encourage, in the last analysis, a kind of British, prissy, P-R-I-S-S-Y, Christianity. You would become a spiritual prig, P-R-I-G. You become a self-conscious uh, Christian who does the right thing to obtain the right end. And heaven knows the world can use a few million like that. It's better than, than unbelief. It's better than, than being carnal or out of the faith. But this is being commended as the high watermark. And I want to uh, share something that contradicts this and offers, I believe, a deeper thing that is really God's intention. So he ends with saying, stay alert and watch out for the unusual and unexpected today and allow it to trigger an awareness and appreciation of your Lord's constant, constant presence in your life. And then he ends always with a little prayer at the bottom. And his prayer is, gracious and loving Heavenly Father, I realize that there are many things I can do to increase my awareness of your presence in my life. Help me to choose the ones that are best for me. In Jesus' name, amen. You notice the way I read this, that my accent and emphasis is falling on certain key words. Me, 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 me. You know that there's a way that uh, we can be more deeply egotistical, being Christian and spiritual, than we were as unregenerate uh, and in the world? That egocentrism can be as much a problem for saints as it is for those that are in the world. It, only the character or the form of it changes. So long as me is your central preoccupation, 
and it's a spiritual preoccupation, it is yet more deadly, yet more powerful in, in uh, making you the sum and substance of all things and the center of your own universe than ever you were occupied by anything in the world. Cars, possessions, money, fame, wealth, girls, whatever it is in the world, nothing like spiritual egotism will bind a person to himself as a false center than to be occupied or preoccupied with your own spirituality and uh, being concerned for how to remind yourself of God's presence by something you do. So let, me, let me read his prayer again. And if I'm all wet, you guys please correct me. Maybe that's it. There's something humanistic about this that really shapes me in the inner, inner man. And I'm sharing this good morning more for myself than for you. If you get any benefit, I need to um, have a cathartic. I need to get this out. I was uh, chafed and upset by the reading of this, and I couldn't swallow it down. I've got to get it out. So you're the victims that give me opportunity to expel this. Let me read this prayer again. E either I'm going off on a tangent, and I'm some kind of sour, misanthropic, excuse my language, that means guys who get old and, and have jaundiced views of things, or I'm onto something that God wants to alert us all. So bear with me. This is not a sermon. I don't know what, what, it, what this is, but it's, it, it deserves consideration. Let me read his prayer again. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father. Well, that's a wonderful way to begin. I realize that there are many things I can do to increase my awareness of your presence in my life. Help me to choose the ones that are best for me. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, there are two entities in that prayer, as in the whole statement, God and me. And God's purpose is to help me. And if it helps me to come to a greater awareness of his presence, then that uh, contributes to my spirituality. You say, well, what's wrong with that? And, or if it's wrong, or if it's wanting, what better alternative than what this man is saying or praying? And that takes us to another Englishman of another sort, Chambers, Oswald Chambers, and his selections, maybe that's, this is what the problem is. In this month of June, he's been talking about incarnation, and it has really found a place in my own heart. Christ in us. I don't know that many of us dwell on that, that the same mystery by which God inhabited the frame that Jesus bore in his earthly tenure 2,000 years ago, that offended Jews, that God should be in the flesh and in man, that he could say that when he speaks, he speaks from the Father, and what he performs is from the Father, was the height of offense for Orthodox Jews who would pray and speak more like this. They would be more in harmony with this kind of a statement because it makes way for man to be religious by his acts or his devices. But when God calls us to something beyond religion, namely to a, a relationship, not even so much alongside, but in, where you don't have to be reminded of something external, but that it's inward and with you, 
as dwelling, then that's, that's something else and it's something greater. The remarkable thing is, if you persist in this, you'll never come to this. If, if you're satisfied and want to develop um, techniques and means of how to cultivate the sense of God externally, you'll never come to the place of, a, of the internal dwelling of Christ and live out of that presence. You don't have to wait for something to feel. You're, you know that the Word says, and God has assured, that our salvation is more than forgiveness of sins, and that the covenant that God has made with us gives us also His life that we might live through Him. It says in First John, this is the love of God toward us, that He has given us His only gotten Son, that we might live through Him. And elsewhere in that book it says, as I have lived through the Father, so shall you also live through me. This is a, a radical thing. It may well be that many Christians prefer something less radical, something more humanly negotiable, something in which they have the control and they are the ones who will exercise or do according to their will, and the result will be good and pleasant and blessed in a way. But to have a radical faith that believes Christ in you, the hope of glory, not just as a resident, a positional presence, but as a life out of which you yourself live. So that, for example, he says, in that day, you'll not ask me anything. What day? On the day when you realize that it's not you making petitions to God, but that the Christ is in you is both the question and answer. And that whatever's in your heart to speak and to do is of the will of God, for he's in us the will and to do of his good pleasure. Can you believe that? And can you be comfortable with that? Can you be at peace with that? Or to be more correct, can you be at rest in that? That whatever is in your heart to do, seeing that you have no will for yourself, you're not seeking ambitiously anything outside of God, your problem has been, should I, shouldn't I? Will he, will he not? The, the, uh, the uh, lack of assurance that what is in your heart is God. You would rather hear something external to confirm this is the way. But to trust the peace that you have and that it is the Lord and that He's well able being in you if you're mis... Uh, if you're misinterpreting the Lord or moving by some human impulse other than His will, He's quite present and able to correct even with a gentle mm -hmm. sense of his spirit a check and in the absence of that check you can be free to be yourself in God for God is in you to will and to do of his good pleasure that is for me so liberating and I guess maybe the reason that I'm so taken with this issue of incarnation is that really I don't have much alternative if you're in my shoes and have to be in the places that I'm in day after day and week after week uh, on these remarkable trips that begin in Macedonia and go on to Bosnia, Bosnia or to um, Sofia, Bulgaria and ten cities of the Ukraine and London and Wales in one trip night after night or day after day 
where you can't afford to miss God once. We couldn't afford to miss God once on this entire trip to Ben Israel from New York. Well, because every place was a crisis of need. And the remarkable thing is that in a one-night stop, you're not going to sit down and say, please tell me what your crisis of need is, but I can consult the Lord and look up the appropriate uh, text and speak to you from that. You just you arrive banged up and tired, and, and uh, before you know it, uh, it's time to share something. You have to trust that uh, what is in your heart, in your spirit, and is alive in your spirit, is the will of God. It's a radical trust. You know what the, re- the remarkable thing is? That God vindicates that trust time after time after time. So blessed. And you, and you know that it wasn't something premeditated or coined out of your own mind and will. Is that? Am I speaking of the gospel? Or is it the gospel for which many of us have fallen short and have not believed and actually prefer the security of a lesser kind of relationship of the kind described here where you, me, I is solidly there and God is there and then your life is a life of petition. Lord, do this for me that I might do this for them. And most Christians, the better Christians, live that kind of life. And yet I'm saying there's something more, something greater that God has already given. And and not many of us have the conscious faith to recognize and to live out of that life consistently because he abides. So Oswald Chambers writes, Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, Jesus said. Now is that a formula for putting a petition, or does it have a deeper meaning? Whatsoever you ask in my name, may not, if I'm not missing the Lord, not be so much the issue of a petition as an inward trust. In my name is not a formula that you invoke in order to get the correct answer. In my name is praying or living in a way consistent with what that name means. A resurrected and ascended Christ who is in us. In my name is to pray in my nature. And where is that nature? It's in you. Maybe you're looking at me dubiously because you don't see much evidence. Or not a sufficient evidence. <laughs> and uh, that this sounds like a pipe dream. But if this is not true, we have all met and most of you pitied. That will I do. The disciple who abides in Jesus and is the will of God. Listen, listen to how extravagant and bold Oswald Chambers is. When they want to dispute with him. The disciple who abides in Jesus is the will of God. Amen. Anyone who, dare, who would dare make a statement like that would be stoned. It would seem like the height of presumption or arrogance, and yet, ironically, it's the height of humility to say that you're in so agreement with God and in his word that his will is my will, and so to live and to abide is to be in his will, is to be his will, as for example, even this morning. You guys are a tough congregation, (laughs) but not too tough for the Lord. (laughs) <laughs> you can only say that not if it's a hit and miss business 
where you screw yourself up to be at your spiritual best and put a real petition to the Lord because the issue is so earnest and then believe that you believe that what you're getting is the Lord's direction and that you can say that is his will. But to say that my life is his will requires more than a once and an occasion by which you get yourself primed. It means a consistent dwelling and abiding in that life. And if this is not the rest of God that he has prepared for his saints, I don't know what that, that rest is. And you're not going to get there in a day. You'll stumble and bumble. You'll, you'll rue the day that you ever heard a word of this kind because you were making it so nicely on the other basis and just about coming to a place where you could maintain a kind of satisfactory spirituality if this standard had not been raised before you. So let me read. The disciple who abides in Jesus is the will of God and his apparently free choices are God's foreordained decree. That is so extravagant a statement. And yet our faith is an extravagant faith and God's provision is an extravagant provision. To fall short of that extravagance is to live beneath the intention and glory of God. Your apparently free choices. Why does he say apparently free? Because it seems to flow effortlessly. You're freely saying, uh, I feel to do this or do that or say this or speak this. It seems apparently free because you're not straining over it. Because you're trusting the life and believing that the God, that, that what is in your heart is his heart and is, is his thought and is his intention. Why, why should you doubt it? Because your, your whole life is lived in the fear of God, not trembling, but in the conscious desire for the fulfillment of his will and the things that promote his glory. Knowing that, and he knows that, why should you doubt that what is in your heart is something other if you have been abiding consistently in him? That's, that's the punchline. This is not something you're going to flip the switch for a moment and it'll work. This is not a technique. It's a mode of being. And I believe it's the, it's the definitive mode that God intends that Oswald Chambers has found and that this man falls short of because he likes it and prefers me, me, me. And yet he's an impressive world figure and blessing many at that level. And I'm not positing a superior spirituality but, but suggesting that God himself has offered us something that few recognize and appropriate. And the remarkable thing is, not only is it apparently free, but it, does, it doesn't sound often very spiritual. Those works might be commonplace. It might even be disappointing. Or the obedience to God in speaking or saying something may not impress you. And in some instances, if it's the life of God, it might actually offend you. And yet, it is born out of his life, and it is his will. And he, you are in such union with him that you will not censor him because of your middle class or white or cultural uh, affinities. You'll allow the full and free expression of his life, even when it jars your own sensibility. Can you, can you believe you can be in that kind of relationship with God? And be astonished yourself at what you hear yourself speaking? 
Well, I'm not boasting in that I've uh, attained something, but I have to say that because of the nature of my life and the demands, it's got to be this. And I have seen the offensive word come out of my mouth on more than one occasion that has even offended me. And yet, when it has been allowed its free course, the end result of it has been remarkable. I think one who has entered into this has entered into his rest, which God has prepared for the people of God. Because, as Chambers says, in a regenerated man, the source of, of will is almighty. It is God which works in you both the will to do his good pleasure. You have to work out with concentration and care what God works in. Not work your own salvation, but work it out. Let it come forth, let it proceed out of what has been established through your salvation. While you base resolutely in unshaken faith on the complete and perfect redemption of the Lord, as you do this, you, will, you do not bring an opposed will to God's will. God's will is your will. Can you say that? You desire that. What if it's contrary to your own human or natural disposition? See, this requires something. It requires the cross. It requires the death of the natural man, which God has provided in his atonement, if we believe and desire for that. So there's no conflict of wills. Your, your will has perished with you in the waters of baptism, and your will is one with him, to will it to do of his good pleasure. God is the source of your will, and therefore you are able to work out his will. And then Chambers asks at the end, Do I believe that Almighty God is the source of my will? God not only expects me to do his will, but he is in me to do it. It's so easy to reduce the glory of the faith into a kind of Christian Judaism. Yes. Where uh, we perform it by self-conscious religiosity because we don't want to be that audacious to presume that Christ is in us, the hope of glory, though the word says so, let alone to trust that glory and to live from it, which means to speak from it. Although we're told in first Corinthians, uh, maybe someone can find it for me, I don't have it marked, from in chapter 1 or 2, he's made unto us wisdom, sanctification, redemption, and power. That's what it says. <laughs> so the whole tenor of scripture indicates a glorious thing that God has made available in his atonement, which we call salvation. And it's a, it's a salvation to the uttermost, but most of us fall short of its fullness. And that's why we fall short also at the Lord's table, and we reduce the glory of what is before us to strengthen and feed the inner life of God that is in us by the eating and drinking of himself and turn those things into elements or abstractions or symbols which don't feed anything, but rather reinforce a religious view of the faith where you can feel that you've done something appropriate but you've not uh, received the quickening power of the life that is in you that, by which God intends you to live. I have a juicy question for ex-Hutterites. just occurs to me. 
though you have come out of a system that has offended you and in fact has expelled you, have you come out of the nexus of that system? Or are you just offended by the form by which it was expressed, but you yourself want to continue in your own life, but in some better expression of it? Understood? Mm -hmm. If ever you heard a question that is a question, (laughs) this is a question that you need to recognize. Mm -hmm. That the habit of being in that environment that is religious, man-centered, man-made, is so deep that though you have come out of it, because of the excesses of the expression, you've not come out of the form. And the form, in fact, is with you. And in fact, in the last analysis, you prefer it. Only you want to improve on it and still fall short of God's glory and maybe end up in a deeper bondage than what you knew in the other place. God didn't bring you out from Egypt to give you a new form of it. And you can, you can take... How do they say you can take the person out of the farm, but can you take the farm out of the person? There's something deep that's rooted that you need to recognize that contends against what you're hearing today. The the challenge of of what you're hearing today. And that's why I'm sensing a swiftness and even a, a, a resistance. But the key is you can't fitfully perform this. Mm-hmm. You have either to dwell and to abide in the Christ who is in you, or you will lapse into your own life and you will feel more secure acting religiously by principles mm-hmm. of what, how it pleases me and what I should do to invoke God's sense of presence. So you, what you need to know is, and I believe this, is that God has called you out, not just to find a better expression of what you knew, but an altogether radical alternative. He's called you into a true Israel, into the land, into the promise, into the rest. But you need to realize that you may yourself be contending against it. And if you search your heart, you may find that you're actually resisting and not wanting, because the other is secure. To trust God Moment by moment, you know, I looked up the word abide. I got a wonderful birthday present, a dictionary. <laughs> you can't give me anything better. The new Oxford American Standard. Listen, listen to the synonyms <coughs> for abiding. Uh, constant, unalterable, invariable, immutable, fixed, unfailing, unceasing, incessant, undying. That's what life has to be. You know, that, that's the way that your heart works incessantly. It continues to beat. The moment that it ceases, you're dead. We're not conscious of its activity, but without it, we, uh, we have no life. It has got to be incessant. It has got to be constant. It has got to be unvarying. But the same thing is true in the life of the Spirit. Can you live as consistently in God as your heart beats as consistently for your bodily life? is really the issue before us. Can we trust that life and dwell and abide? And don't think that will not be tested. Where there are choices and decisions to be made, where everything in us that is natural and has been conditioned by our histories would have us to opt for what we could do and choose and plan and perform, rather than to trust the still small voice of the inward presence of God, 
though his word says that he's made unto us sanctification, redemption, wisdom, and power. In the initial stages, it is a continual effort. Chambers is speaking because he has worked his way through this, through a process of death. He went through a long night of the soul where he passed out of this and into this. It took a process of death because he grew up in this British Christian prissy uh, environment of being correct to come into it. He's now speaking here. So, in the initial stages, it is a continual effort until it becomes so much the law of life that you abide in him unconsciously, unselfconsciously, and then he says, determined to abide in Jesus wherever you are placed. So it's going to be, in the initial stages, a continual effort, a kind of tension, a struggle, until it becomes a love life, as much as breathing, as much as the beating of your heart. You know that you know that you know he's in me, the will that do, do of his good pleasure. And if I have a peace in what I'm determining to speak, to speak and to do, that's his will and good pleasure. If it's not, he's well able at any moment to give me a check. In the absence of that, I'm free to be myself in God without being self-conscious. Don't say, Lord, just a minute, I've got this to do. Yes, I will abide when once this is finished, when this week is over, it'll be all right, I will abide then. He writes, get a move on, begin to abide now. I think the reason we so rarely hear messages on the incarnate life of Christ in us is because there are few men who are living in it and they're therefore not prompted to speak it. And if they speak it and, not on, and are not in it, there'll be a jarring contradiction between the word, of the message and the messenger. It will lose its cogency and its effect. This dear pastor that Reggie knows in Brooklyn where I've just spoken at that seminar, it's been painful for me to sit in that congregation. He's going through the book of Hebrews and in a recent message on chapter 3, he spoke on the rest of God. And he was really hammering it home. Maybe something like me today. And uh, I left. I, uh, the air went out of me. I had my hand on my car door handle to leave. And he ran out of the church and said, Art, don't go. Let me take you for lunch. Oh, I said, I have prayed, Lord, if you anything more, have him invite me, which he did. And so the, the, the church was closed, the service was over. We started to walk to this restaurant around the corner. I turned to him and I said, This message on rest that you gave today, did you speak it out of the rest? Dun, 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 dun. He went boring, like, what? I said, you spoke a message about rest, but did you speak it out of the rest? Because I knew quite well he didn't. He spoke it out of human religious striving because he has a recalcitrant and difficult congregation so he's got to turn up the vibes and hammer home the points. But the paradox is to hammer home points about rest is to nullify rest. The only way to commend rest is out of the rest. That's how our conversation began. And then it went on like that as we walked to the restaurant and when we sat down to eat, the Lord never ceased. It was the deepest, most precious, personal uh, conversation and testimony, witness to himself that he had ever received in 60 some odd years. 
He was challenged to the root. And then the waiter, the meal was over, the waiter came and said, May I serve you coffee? And without thinking, unselfconsciously, I said, Ida, why don't we go to your house? You make the best coffee in Brooklyn. But what I knew is that the issue was not coffee. The issue was the continuation of the subject that was pressing this man more deeply than he had known in a lifetime of Christian service and could not be finished in a restaurant, but needed the sanctity and quiet and privacy of his home. And so we went to their home for coffee, and the Lord finished where it began. On the street with the question, you've spoken on rest, but did you speak it out of the rest? And over his table, in his t-shirt, relaxed now, he said, you know what? As I was speaking this morning, there was a moment when the Holy Spirit said, Cease from your notes and trust me. And I turned and I said, And what did you do? I knew what he did. He, he did not hearken. He went on with his trust in the religious thing. Because that's the only thing he's known all these years long. I said, Well, then you've, you've grieved the Holy Spirit. The inward presence of the Lord actually made clear something he was asking you to do and you refused to yield. I said, this church is full of log jams and convoluted and constipated saints. Who knows their histories that, of things that should have been brought to God long before and forsaken and repented of. But until you pray and ask God's forgiveness for your own intransigence and failure to heed the still small voice, see what abiding means? then you can't expect any breaking in the church. And so the dear man in his t-shirt bent his head over the empty coffee cup and asked God's forgiveness for grieving the Holy Spirit and choosing to act out of himself, self-consciously fearing that if he let go, somehow the, 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 the message would be lost and the people would be disappointed or unaffected. Actually, quite the opposite would have taken place. That's what the Lord is doing. When, it, when your whole life has been steeped in the habit of trusting yourself religiously to make decisions, if God will help you and tell you what to do, that you might do it, you and our independent entities, is a far cry from the glory of Christ in us, the hope of glory. In us to willing to do His good pleasure that natural, effortless flow of the life of God in the wisdom and character that it pleases Him to express. Can you trust that? Can you trust that consistently? Can you trust that abidingly, moment by moment? That's the life. So you need to know, you Hutterites and maybe others, you're fighting against a whole history of a background of another kind that would be far more comfortable with this, but is different than other than the high calling. Okay? And the Lord has set before us the precious provision for the renewal of covenant. And the heart of that covenant is the exchanged life. Calvin said, as natural food feeds the natural body, the communion table, the spiritual food of the wine and the bread, which is the spirit and life of God, feeds the inner man, feeds, strengthens that, that life in us. So, 
take the cup and the bread this morning with that consciousness and that desire. Because will anything less or other glorify God? The issue is not your comfort and your success in your decisions and choices. The issue is, what mode of being will glorify God? That's the purpose for our life. And let me finish on this biographical note. The same God who said to this pastor, cease from your notes, is the same God who had me cleave to my notes in 1976, or whatever that year was, at Kansas City, when I gave the message on the Holocaust. I came up to that platform with a yellow legal pad with an outline that God had given from the very first day of my arrival and never added anything to it. There were 2,000 people in the congregation. There were hundreds of Messianic Jews who looked upon me at that time as being one of the foremost spokesmen among the Jewish believers. And the Lord did not allow me to even make a gesture, to, to uh, expand, to, to voice, to interpolate, but to read in the most mechanical, monotone, the outline on the page. And when I finished, there was a dead silence. I thought, this has got to be the most colossal collapse of my entire service in God. And what a moment to collapse before 2,000 people on the subject of the Holocaust and all these Jewish believers who looked to me with such esteem. It gave every appearance of total failure. Dead silence. And within a matter of moments, there was a shriek and a cry that broke out of that congregation like nothing I have ever heard before nor since. And the wave of repentance went throughout 2,000 people. They were virtually toppling out of their seats in depth of cry that that word had affected in the obedience to speak it in monotone, mechanically, as reading it. I think it's the only time I've ever spoken a read message. So I'm not saying that, well, this is the way that you should speak. What I'm saying is this. The God who would have a man to cease from his notes is the God who would have a man on another occasion to cleave to his notes. But the question is, does he have you? Are you in that union with him that if he chooses to have you to cleave or to be free, you instantly will abide and act out of that will which is in you of his good pleasure and not your own fear your own insecurity, your own mental and human calculation of what you think is appropriate. Got the idea? May he have the possession of us both to be released from cleaving to notes and to cleave as his wisdom will dictate for he's made unto us wisdom, sanctification, redemption, and power. And the power was, boom, what was loosed on that congregation. That there was foot washing and healing and 200 Jews got up and asked people of Polish and German and European extraction their forgive, forgiveness for what our Jewish forefathers have done to corrupt their faith by our unbelieving cynicism. And they got up and asked us to forgive their fathers for what they visited upon Jews in the Easter occasions when blood flowed in, in the streets of Germany and, and medieval Europe. It was a, it was a historic occasion. And what, what released it was obedience to the life within. Though it's not comfortable to speak jacketed into a monotone. Got the idea? So I'm encouraging you dear Hutterites to search your hearts 
and to ask, though you are disappointed in the conduct of men acting out of self-conscious religiosity, are you yet wanting to continue in that same mode but do a better job of it? Have you repented of the mode itself, not just its poor expression as you've known it in your experience in your Hutteritic uh, background? You understand? Have you repented of the mode and not just its abuse or misuse? Because it, it is contending against the freedom and the rest into which God would bring you. So Lord, we have to believe that your word is effectual and it's a hammer upon the rock. And this rock is quite formidable. It has had centuries and generations to be formed and entire communities have been predicated upon it successfully, that is to say, financially and materially and even religiously. But it's contrary to the ethos and genius of the faith that you have made possible through the suffering and the death of your son and that you've given us a greater alternative than self-conscious religion by principle where we are separate entities wanting that we should receive something that will help us to do, but that you're in us to do of your good pleasure. Lord, may we believe that and trust that and test that and walk that out and, and begin to move into that until it becomes the abiding reality of our life. And we'll know it because we will be totally unselfconscious. We'll be in a wonderful freedom with each other and before men. We'll know that you are appropriate in your wisdom on every occasion. We don't have to break our skulls to determine what we think appropriate in this situation or that. You're, you're in us. You're our life. You're our, our expression. You're our thought. You're our wisdom. You're all things. It's a great salvation to the uttermost. And so, Lord, bless us in the reconsideration of that gospel and the appropriation of it. And may this table, this bread, and this blood, this wine, this morning, my God, strengthen however feeble that life has been come by being reduced and not acted out of, find a surge of, of, of increase uh, that, that every believer might begin to trust that life and speaking out of it and come to the table each time with greater delight, greater expectancy for the fresh renewing of this covenant and of the provision of the covenant, which is the life of resurrection and ascension. Not just life, but life in its highest governmental form from the throne that will cover all of the amplitude of every situation that we're required to face in this life and in this community. Thank you, Lord, for such provision. God forbid we fall short of it. Uh, even and a fraction bring us by God to that great abiding which, which takes divine strength to abide consistently and to dwell and you've provided that strength also in your life thank you for the so great gift of life in Christ Jesus who has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly in Jesus name Amen, Amen.